rise up. Let your wise rise up. See the signs of the times. If it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is February 25th, 2015, and tonight on New Abolitionist Radio, we will break down the recent slave revolt at Willisie County Correctional in South Texas. Also, the Memphis, Tennessee Police Department is threatening to demote dozens of African-American police officers for complaining about racism. A detective who led one of the most shocking acts of torture ever conducted at Gitmo was responsible for implementing a disturbingly similar years-long regimen of brutality to elicit false and forced murder confessions from Chicago minorities. Plus, we'll tell you about a second bombshell that dropped relating to this story. Allegedly, Chicago cops have been running a CIA-style black site for nearly a decade, maybe longer, snatching up citizens, secretly torturing and questioning citizens with absolutely no regard for their constitutional rights. In our final final headline nudes segment, we'll tell you about a Corizon medical doctor who works for Geo Group accused of multiple cases of sexual abuse. Inmates have filed several civil lawsuits, and we have the details. Our abolitionist in profile today will be Samuel Eli Cornish, 1795 to 1858, and this week's writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Susan Marie Mellon, 59, who was exonerated and freed after 17 years in prison. You can expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archive podcasts at New Abolitionist radio.blogspot.com We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1-530-881-1400 Access code 549-032-POUND Just press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line Peace, Scotty. Peace, Your Honor. How are you brothers doing this week? Peace. Peace, Max. So I'm just same thing I do every week, man. On my grind, you know, I'm trying to say facilitate information flowing to the People, so uh, Johanna can tell you about that. I fell asleep on him today on Abolitionist Radio Daily. <laughs> I apologize, everybody. The podcast has been cleaned up, I assure you. But yeah, uh, just staying busy, Max. Um, uh, congrats to you, man. W- weren't you uh, featured on a cover of a, a spoken word uh, magazine? Yes, uh, I am the featured artist in Spoken Visions magazine, uh, which is the five-time recipient of the uh, Spoken Word Magazine of the Year Award from the National Poetry Awards. And uh, they made me their feature artist. Ask me a lot of unique questions that I've never been asked before. So uh, if you're out there and you're listening, you want to learn more about me, just go to Spoken Visions with a Z and Visions dot com and check out the article uh subscribe as a matter of fact that's one of the premier uh magazines for our culture well congr- congratulations uh to you for those who don't know max he's been doing this show about three years but he is a 
world-renowned spoken word uh, artist, uh, internationally yeah, I, known. I, I got this new app called Time Hop, and it's kind of reminding me of some things because normally you just let things slide. But it pointed out that this time, this day, last year, I was uh, my wife and I were the number one artist in spoken word in our city, number one in the state and number one in the country. And across all genres, it was only 1,300 artists doing better than this across the world. And of course, um, <laughs> that was pretty wild, man. And of course, you've been out there spreading the abolitionist message. It, it's all abolitionists. When people listen to my poetry, that's all you hear really is me talking the same thing. I'm a broken record. I just find new and unique ways to say the same thing over and over again. That's what's up. That's what we need, man. Everybody, uh, like I was saying earlier today, uh, it's like the Avengers, you know, the, the superhero team come together. That's what the abolitionist movement is. So, you know, you definitely got your gifts and, and talents and share that and spread that and, and teach it as best you can and, and, you know, inspire, sow them seeds and bring up new abolitionists all the time. So, you know, right. you sow the seeds and, and, the, and the fruit, you know, that's going to bear fruit. It's going to continue to bear fruit and continue to bring out what we're all in this to, to, to bring about the change that we need to see. One of the things about longevity is you get to see the fruits of your labor. And that's yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to give a shout out. I can't shout all your names out, but I'm showing <laughs> in the group move to abolish 21st century slavery that we got 45 new members, um, to add to 1,393. So I just want to welcome those 45 new members to the group Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking. If you're on Facebook, it's facebook.com, groups, and new abolitionists with a S, new abolitionists, and you'll find us. And we're a group, and we're a group of people. If you join the group, you know, you have to believe that 21st Century Slavery and human trafficking exists that um the thirteenth amendment did not abolish slavery in the United States but constitutionalized it, gave it protected status for for certain individuals and cor- and corporations. And so but we want to turn this group I'm I think I'm getting some feedback. I was it's going now. Um but for those new members, um we want to make this group like a lobbying group. All right. A collective where we get on phone call, we make phone calls, we do emails, uh, we may send a call of action out that's been shared from somebody else, like in terms of, um, you know, like prisoners, uh, the new slaves, um, you know, when they're facing life and death situations because they're not being given the medical care that they need. And of course, you know, we talk a lot on this program and of course, Johanan covers it about the medical malpractice that goes on uh, in these prisons or on these prison plantations. And, and so, you know, it's important that when we put out calls to action, that people make those calls, you know, right. that people send those emails. And, you know, so we want to make it more than just about a group that shares information. Information is important, but you have to act on that information. And you may save somebody's life because we have been part of efforts not just this group, but through our efforts through political prisoner groups uh, and advocacy, uh, we ha- we have saved the life of people. If they didn't get the medical attention that they got mm-hmm. when they got it, then they possibly could have died. Life and death. I mean, denying people cancer treatment. You know, come on, you're supposed to start in, in January and you're withholding it for months, even though doctors have ordered it. It's been clear. 
And so why are you holding up, up this former, you know, Black Panther Party member of uh, cancer treatment in, in prison? So, yeah, those are important. So welcome to the group. We hope that you be active. That's the least we could do is make phone calls and send emails and people that don't think that, you know, that makes a difference. Well, again, I, I could uh, make a list of uh, prisoners mm-hmm. where we have seen it make a difference. Yes. Indeed, it, especially if you're trying to one, if you're wondering what it is you can do to help, and you don't feel like sharing news information stuff like that is enough, go outside your comfort zone and try this. You know what I mean? Uh, sign the positions, make the phone calls, whatever it be necessary. If you're an abolitionist, then these are the things that abolitionists in the 21st century are doing right now, trying to get people out of these cells and trying to save their lives while they're in them. It's definitely not something, it's definitely not an exercise just for the looky-loos. I mean, it's not a, you know, a, a train wreck or something. Everybody's standing on the side just looking at what's going on. You know, the nation is falling apart, and this is one of the root problems, and we know that. But we can't just, like Scotty said, just amass a bunch of information about it and sit up and look at it and comment and press like on it. We have to use it to start affecting change. We have to use it to start holding people accountable. We we have some very intimate and specific information about local jurisdictions, about we have individuals' names, we have, you know, what offices they hold, what kind of political positions or connections they have. We go into in-depth research and provide that information. So in your local area, you can take that information, spread that to other people. You've got a powerful force to protest directly, to hold those people accountable, to show up at the town hall or at the council meetings or catch these people, you know, wherever you can find them and hold them accountable for the things that you know that they're doing because we're giving you the facts. You could take what we say and go directly to these people and put it in their face and they they can't dispute it. So you could trust our research. We're doing the legwork. We're riding with journalists and researchers and people that professionally do this and give this and we're spreading it out to you. Where you're at locally you need to be taking action too to help this thing become something. It's not just a spectators party. This is an action party. So we gotta, we gotta get, get busy. Yeah. Our first goal in uh, the first year of the uh, move to abolish 21st century site was to achieve a 1000 member, uh, 1000 members to get to that point and to start mobilizing those thousand members. And now we're uh, 50%, nearly 50% more than that. Our goal for right. 2016 is to have 10,000 members. See, as we keep expanding, the voice gets louder and clearer, you know? Absolutely. So we're well on our way. If you know someone that doesn't know enough yet, you should send them to listen, really. Even like right now, just tag somebody. Yo, listen to this. You've never heard this before? Listen to this. Um, I think we're coming up on our first break in about two minutes. And uh, then after that, we're going to get into some serious stories tonight, Uh, some mind-blowing stuff, man. And it's all tied together in 21st century human trafficking and modern-day slavery, uh, particularly the Chicago stories, the things that we're seeing coming out of Chicago right now uh, based on torture and, and, and so on. And even Bill Maher just recently, I don't know if you guys saw the video where he came out and he demanded that President Obama... Uh, abolish all of these drug war laws and just end the drug war. And not only did he say that, but he went and became an abolitionist, even though he's not an abolitionist, and said, not only do I want you to end the war, I want you to release the victims. 
Well, see, all of that that's going to the mainstream, that starts at the grassroots, at the grassroots yeah. media. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? The, um, you know, stuff that a lot of independent media producers put out the information to inform people. And so, you know, as that, that, as you talked about earlier, that voice, mm -hmm. uh, grows louder, then, you know, these people can, that, that are given these platforms to reach millions, they can't, you know, they are forced to, Right. you know, address these issues on their platforms. Yeah, this is an example of just how speaking of it, just the simple act of talking about it makes a difference. I mean, come on, Venezuela, I think we reported this on the last show, but Venezuela um, just called out the United States on, on yep. um, yeah, I forgot what it's called, the peer review, some PRI, something like that, but this is a yeah. UN peer review like group and they got put they got put on blast for uh the 13th amendment venezuela told them to repeal the entire 13th amendment that legalizes slavery as punishment for a crime i mean it's no coincidence that like john legend said on the, the other night that this is incarceration nation so that's why Yep, that's why people are starting to recognize it and they're getting away from that BS uh narrative that they're being fed. Uh just so many lies coming out. Like the one I saw earlier about conservatives being responsible for criminal justice reform. <laughs> like you got to be freaking kidding me, man. Well, maybe they are to an extent cuz we I'm not a reformist. I see reform as a stalling tactic so you can wait another 50 years and do the same thing all over again. But nonetheless, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parthas, Scotty Reed, and Johanna Nalaya. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking, and we'll be back with our first story right after these messages. Prophet. The dictionary defines this as one who delivers divine messages or who foretells the future. Rage. A useful and necessary tool for revolution. Put these two together, and you'll find a common theme for a group whose global message has proven them to be the prophets of rage. For PETV, this was Ty Raid. You're quite hostile. I got a right to be hostile, man. My people been persecuted. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, our first story of the day uh, this week is Memphis Police Department is threatening to demote black cops if they keep complaining about racism. I believe Brother Johanan is handling that story today. Yes, sir. This uh pretty ridiculous uh, information as we seem to be covering on this program week to week is some of the most outrageous things you could you could ever hear or ever. I mean, what's going on in our country? Yeah, these these uh, officers uh, were threatened with uh, being demoted. African American officers specifically threatened uh, with being demoted uh, simply because they were standing up to racism. This going on within the department. So when we talk about the good cops and you know why don't the good cops stand up or what have you? I mean, obviously the uh, people of color, the officers that are that are of a of a different color than the mainstream and maybe are the, the going to be in lesser numbers 
represented throughout the force, <clears throat> they're going to have to stand up for themselves first before they can, you know, join in league with the majority or whatever and, and, and be a part of if they're going to start any kind of revolution within those ranks because they are, they are at the butt end of, you know, systematic racism and white supremacy rules the day um, in their ranks just like it does in most corporations and most institutions and where people find themselves, you know, working with hundreds or thousands of colleagues or what have you, it's going to be a white supremacy party. So this was a story that was covered in uh countercurrent news it says the uh, Memphis, Tennessee police department is threatening to demote dozens of African-American police officers simply because they are standing up to racism in the department. Officials with the Memphis police say that African-American cops would be forced to pay back money that they earned after receiving promotions if they don't back down from their claims against the department. It says the Memphis Police Department has had decades-long history of being criticized for their racism and discriminatory practices against African-Americans in and off the force. And in recent decades, African-American officers have claimed that they were deliberately passed up for promotions when they had been on the job longer, had better records than uh, some of the people who they were passed over for. Uh, they said they found records of allegations documented as far back as 1979. So you see how, you know, again, generational, the problem is 19, I was born in 1974, so that's nearly 40 years of this going on. So this is a lot of these people's entire careers, you know, the people that are ready to retire now. You know, just oh, put, go ahead. Just putting that in perspective, so people know what we're talking about. We're talking about Memphis, Tennessee. We're talking right. about the Southern Southern Federation territory. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're not talking about up in north or something like that. This is Southern Police Departments, where just a decade or two ago, people couldn't even come together and, and, and intermingle. You know, a couple of decades ago, right. where right. You know, they, racism was rampant. So, well, wait a minute, man. Uh, the Klan still goes on a na uh, annual pilgrimage to Memphis. They got a statue there on public city land, um, in a park Nathan, to Nathan Bedford Forest, man. And and yeah, and um, Black Autonomy Federation. That's why I know you know a lot more about Memphis than I guess the average person you know that's not in that area or even in that state, uh, knows about it is because of uh, Black Autonomy Federation, which used to do a program uh, on the Black Talk Radio Network on Saturday nights. Um, that's their main headquarters is in Memphis. And they talked about how uh, all these cops, uh, Memphis might lead the country. I, I have no way of verifying this, but they often said that, and I know they do their research, okay? So Sister Jonina and, and, and Brother uh, Kamboa Irvin, um, so, yeah, I know they do their research, but they said that they led the nation, you know, in the number of police shootings, police shoot. I ain't talking about police getting shot, but police doing the shooting, you know, killing black people, man. And so that's why I'm conflicted about this story, man, because let's 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 break it down. What are these black cops standing up to? Well, you say racism and discrimination and certainly uh, in terms of how much how much money they were making. Yeah. They were discriminated against. But let's take an honest look at what their job is. They, well, they weren't right. standing up against, well, I think it's too many unarmed black people getting killed in the city. They ain't what they, and, and you know, no, these are black cops killing black people. 
you know, uh, again, I got my information from people that live there. And so we see that all across the nation. We've seen it in the past, you know, and so, you know, I'm conflicted about the story because, you know, I'm not going to praise you and say, oh, you standing mm-hmm. up against the system of racism and white supremacy. Um, but you, you know, you a slave catcher. Let's be real about what you do. You the modern slave catcher, you know, unless you a cop that when you catch somebody, you know, you pull somebody over and you find whatever substance, you know, so-called banned substance, unconstitutionally banned substance, and you haul them in and then, or do you just let them go? You know, if you don't believe in that, take it from them. You know what I'm saying? Take it from them, throw it in the trash, whatever. But no, you bringing in new slaves, you know what I'm saying? And you know it's hard for these people to find a job you know that there is no money being spent on any kind of infrastructure, anything like that, that slavery is a, a, can we say multi-billion dollar a year industry or is it just a billion dollars? It's it's much, (laughs) it's nearly, it's it's closer to a trillion than not. Yeah, they're making a a lot of money. And that's what these black cops is mad about, is we've been out here catching all these slaves right along as good as white cops. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And we've even shot a few, uh, people out here, you know, and so, yeah, that, it, but, and we want equal pay for, you know, <laughs> you know our slave catching duties. Metaphorically speaking, it kind of reminds me of the house slave in the house complaining that because he's black, his room in the big house has a little chill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You house, know, but, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, there were house, there were so-called house slaves that would uh, try to poison master and things. Those stories are not told as much. And, you know, but um, I'm not. Yeah, man. But it, it just really disturbs me. This is what people are focusing on. This is what all the mass media is going to focus on. You know, uh, counter current news. They put out a lot of good information on police brutality, violence, terrorism. Uh, yeah, they do it, but that story, you know what I'm saying? The angle, it's not going to make people think about what the deeper issue is here. Let's all jump on board because they black, we black. They not being paid the same as cops, white cops. So yeah, we need to get behind that. But what are we really ultimately getting behind? We getting behind 21st century slavery and human trafficking. That's what we getting behind. I would say that it was of interest to me. Uh, and to be featured on the program because like yeah, it's with, a good uh, pick. It's a good topic. Let's explore yeah. all the angles. Yeah, I wanna I wanna see is it something that will put their feet to the fire about the things you're talking about. Because it's one thing when you got these these uh again the house slaves or you got the favored you know the favored hands on the farm or whatever that are that are getting extra biscuits or getting extra molasses or whatever. It's one thing for them to come down on you, to crack the whip on you, to to drive you a little harder because they're doing that in the best interest of master because they're getting extra rations. But when it turns around and they can't get them biscuits, now let's see, are you going to align yourself with the movement to get us all off the plantation? So I'm interested in seeing if they, if we can reach them in, a, I mean, they're going to go through the courts. They, they're going to believe in the court. Most of them are going to live and die by trying to get the judicial system to do something for them. But if we could just reach a few even to convert them into what is the, the reality of the truth yeah, about the situation. Yeah, new abolitionists. 
Yeah, we need to we need you to know? reach out or try to get a hold of these people to get them to take the situation, the broader situation, like you said, more seriously and convert them. You know, catch them while they down because right now they don't feel like they're part of the blue, the blue unit, the blue member brotherhood or whatever. Right now they feel like they're on the outside and they know they black. Yeah, but you know we did the stories uh, on what's going on in St. Louis County with the deadest prisons, and you know. Right. Another headline that came out about uh, a St. Louis police officer was a black female, and she turned off the camera while all these white cops was kicking his brother down on right. the ground, beating him. And right, she, right. she like, hold up, wait a minute, let me we, turn we, the camera we read. off. We, we read, yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> let me turn the camera off. And she was like an officer of the year, so I'm like, what was she doing? You know what I'm saying? To get officer of the year in a county that practices straight up, you know what I'm saying, harsh uh, you know, no, no, not even trying to hide it, you know, shuffling people in jails in different cities and just, you know, extorting money out of them. You know, uh, I mean, I'm still angry about how they did that 50 year old woman, black woman, you know, um, that we reported on this program. But, you know, again, if we can reach them and say, stop doing that, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Stop arresting people for victimless, nonviolent, so-called crimes, you know what I'm saying, like marijuana, drugs, whatever. You know what I'm saying? You don't, look, if you're a black cop, cop out there, get up with law enforcement against prohibition. Uh, their chairman is Neil Franklin, former captain, Maryland police, who has broke down on stage and cried about what yeah. he did to his people. Uh, his yep, name again that. is Neil Franklin, law enforcement against prohibition. Their website is L-E-A-P uh, dot com, I believe. And so, um, yeah, so what? I'm all about reaching them, man. But I'm also about being truthful about what their job consists of. There have been some that have pr protested in that vein, like but we've seen what occurred where they've been told. Yeah, not enough, terms, though, man. You have to go back out and uh, fill this quota of uh, tickets and, and nonviolent drug arrests and things like that. Like the New York situation where the cops stopped uh, doing that. And then they were told in no uncertain terms, we're losing $10 million a week and you better start doing this or you're going to get fired. Right, and, right. You know, there just, have been individual cops that have filed lawsuits. There's another NYPD cop who filed a lawsuit. Uh, he, had the, he had his commander on tape telling him go out here and stop questioning Fritz, 16-year-old black boys, all the way up to the age 23, I think. Just had them on tape talking about racial profiling. We know they lost it. Anyway, yeah. So, But the number of, of cops that are doing things like that or, you know, getting among themselves and saying, look, this is unconstitutional. This is wrong. We're not going to. We're not just going to be a part of the good old boys club and get, you know, privileges to get to kill people on the street and get away with it. You know what I'm saying? Beat up people and get paid vacation and all, all of that. So, I mean, we got to change that mindset. You know what I'm saying? We got to change that mindset. Don't go along with it. When I was serving in the United States military, I asked some of my fellow soldiers, you know what I'm saying? If they deployed us against our people. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I think this was uh, what made me ask was the L.A. rebellion. You know, Rodney King, when they let all those white cops get, you know, get off and whatnot. The rebellions that uh, resulted from that. I was in the military and I asked, you know, some of my fellow non-white soldiers, what did they deploy us against our people? And this captain, this whoever, you know, this non-black person tells us, you know, to open fire on our people. What, 
what you gonna do? So, I mean, <laughs> what'd they say? Um, they was like, I don't know. I ain't never thought about that and whatnot, well, but I had some, my, but, but my yeah. ones that I hung <laughs> with, you know what I'm saying, without with, chilled with, like that, you know whose side they was on, down for the people. Right. You don't want to think about that though. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know what they would say, you know what they're saying if they don't give an answer, a definitive answer. They're saying yes, they would do it. I would say, I mean, if somebody asks you, yeah, would I you, was, you shouldn't have to think about mm-hmm. that. Is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. I mean, man. what, what other questions can somebody ask you? Would you do it? And you have to think, uh, well, uh, you know, would you, would you have sex with your sister? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. Who the hell you know what the answer is? Would you shoot your fellow citizens? And, but nope, that's exactly what the army known as the domestic army known as police. You know what I'm saying? Uh, right. That's exactly what they're doing. They're firing on citizens. And, you know, that's oh, the, yeah. the critical part about this uh, Lieutenant Tyrone Curry, who is the uh, treasurer for the Afro- Afro-American Police Association Memphis branch. He said, you should not retaliate against people just because they're exercising their constitutional rights. Now, <laughs> that's some hypocritical stuff right there. Because that's what oh, the organization does every day, all right. day long. Wait Any- a minute, Max. Okay, again, um, Black Autonomy Federation did a program where, well, they actually had demonstrated against the Klan, um, who was being allowed to speak on the stairs of the courthouse or wherever, you know, city hall or whatever, and the police protected them. And they put, they had cages up, man. I got pictures of it, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, that I had grabbed. They put the protesters who were protesting against the uh, Klan in a cage, and had dogs, had German shepherds, had snipers on the roofs. Everything you heard about Ferguson went down in Memphis, Tennessee. This was last year, okay? Because this is an annual thing, man. And it's pointing automatic weapons at, at you know, mostly black people that were wanted to exercise their constitutional right to shout down the Klan. And they put them in a, a concentration camp, basically. Man. And these are the same people who are telling yeah, black these people, dudes you know, that's all arguing so you know about oh they mistreating us, huh? Really? Right. You just now figuring that out that they don't like black people? You know uh, <laughs> what's that song? Uh, it's titled "Those Hoes Ain't Loyal." <laughs> you just right. figure that out. You know what I mean? Like your loyalties have been misplaced all along from the very beginning. We've said it here over and over again that the police system and police force as we know it derived from the slave catchers in particular the southern police departments came directly from slave catchers so you know how can you expect something that was made out of evil to somehow be this force for good that you're defending and you know with these hypocritical statements regarding constitutional rights man just look at what happened in ferguson that's your organization so you got no right to complain about anything unconstitutional happening to you as long as you're doing it to someone else that's why i felt it was important to tell what happened people can google that google the memphis Klan rally in um tennessee in 2014 you'll find some stuff just google memphis Klan rally this is an annual thing that they do but the police were all out man to put them in a in a free speech cage uh, you know but threatening them with automatic weapons dogs things of that nature, full riot gear, you know, 
So, you know, that's why I'm conflicted about this story. I'm against racism, you know what I'm saying? But I'm not feeling it for these guys. It is, they are, racism is being practiced against them. Yes, it is. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking at what they have done and what they're complaining about, what they won't pay for. I think they should be, you know what I'm saying? Especially with the people that's really responsible should be on trial. You know what I'm saying? You, you talking about, I ain't getting paid as much as, as good as these white slave catchers. That, no, I can't get behind that. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you yeah, was like standing bad. up for black people and didn't have a record of killing black people, you know, and no, no. If you weren't doing that, I'm, I would be behind you, but no, that's not what you're doing. You like so, my man up there in Wisconsin. Uh, what's the, what's the sheriff David name Clark. making it hard for black people to live? Sheriff David Clark. Yeah, David Clark. Milwaukee County Sheriff presiding over the county with the highest rate of incarceration of black males aged 30 to 47 per capita in the nation. He's a black sheriff. Ain't that something for you? I'll tell you the system used these <laughs> proxy racist tools. To, Let's talk about the yeah. news story, like you just said. What's the narrative being presented here from this story, which comes out of Countercurrent? Are they uh, putting the, these black officers in the black struggle, so to speak, uh, when dealing? Yes, with, is that what they're doing? That's what I felt. They mentioned civil rights so many times, and they talked about civil rights, constitutional rights. There, that's what I got from it. They're painting I just them don't as think being, they really knew the know, background on this police department so, and didn't really investigate. You know what I'm saying? And they just reporting right. on the on the racism and pay aspect, and how the city is is also. You know, just saying, I mean, it is an egregious act. You know, let's take cop out of it and let's just put, let's replace them with garbage men. If these were city garbage men or, you know, other city workers or whatnot. And they just saying, if you don't quit complaining about racism, we're going to demote you. And not only are we going to demote you, but for those who did get a promotion, you know, and you complain, and we're going to make you pay back all that money that you got from us, you know, um, from those promotions. So, I mean, it's an egregious act of racism uh, and discrimination. And, well, yeah, it's a pay. perfect example of racism because racism has to include the power to enforce your racist views. Right. And they certainly are enforcing city, <laughs> you know. Oh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, they got a black mayor, too. <laughs> Well, they had one that wouldn't have passed away recently, remember? Well, I hadn't heard about that's that. A, <clears throat> anymore, that's the, that's the greatest indication that there is corruption going on when you see him put a black face in the, in the position to run it. That's exactly. when you know it's getting ready to be And, and this BS is how the down. people being treated? So, mm -hmm. you know, you know, they're proxy racist tools. You know, this reminds me of seeing the elite of the world marching arm in arm together down the Parisian streets uh, after the uh, killings over there, you know, like somebody is actually going to stop them or shoot them with spray, uh, pepper spray or water cannons or sick dogs. Right. Out, you know what I mean? Like that right. was such a mockery right. to me. Like, what are you doing? What are you really doing? <laughs> well, they got that. They got a the couple of incidents from the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Occupy where they put those, made those videos viral of, of cops spraying mace on the college kids and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's kind of their precedent that was set of violence that's enacted against them. So they had to make that, you know, we're crusaders for the truth out here. We're facing 
the possibility that one of us might get maced. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. I thought that was just such a mockery. It was a slap in the face of everybody who's ever struggled and used marches in order to get attention to their causes. And you got these leaders of nations, multi-billionaires, walking arm in arm like they're risking their safety by walking right. down the street. Or like, you know, they're being so courageous to show people their solidarity. And all they're doing really is cultural appropriation. <laughs> That's really all they're doing. They're stealing something from somebody else to make them uh, seem like the people they stole these from. They lying. Yeah, that's it. That's it. They're lying. <laughs> anyway, with that being said, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to be on our next story about that detective out in Chicago who was working also at Gitmo and was responsible for torturing people there who brought that back to Chicago and did the same thing to citizens of Chicago. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, where we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking as new abolitionists for the 21st century, just like Angela Davis requested that we have a new abolitionist movement. And we have it. Not only do we have that, but we also have an underground railroad. Kudos to that, you know? I was glad when I saw that starting to appear. Our second story coming up is about a detective who, uh, as I said, worked out in Guantanamo Bay, and uh he was one of the leading t people to bring that type of torture to Guantanamo and then brought it back to Chicago. Um, I mean, he was highly decorated, too. Highly decorated. You want to do this one, Scotty? Well, yeah, I can. I, I could jump on it real quick. Basically, this was a, a Chicago detective, and he was, he's been engaged in a lot of torture. Let me just open up uh, this Guardian uh, article. All right, so apparently this cop from Chicago uh, was working i guess i don't know how does that work out did he like get recruited in some kind of special federal program to where he's down there at Guantanamo? oh yeah that's right he was a, a reservist i forgot and so um during his uh reserve duty he got sent or stationed at guantanamo bay where he applied these torture techniques to these arabs and other non-white people um, who are being held um, down there in Guantanamo Bay and tortured and, and uh, put through all kind of abuse. Well, this guy had actually uh, came with some experience uh, because he had been doing it in Chicago and Cook County. Um, that that uh, area, um, that uh, county it is known for all the abuses and just all the corruption. You want to talk about corruption, Mark Clements. Uh, who runs uh, No More Death Penalty. He's been a frequent guest on the network. Talked to him about, you know, abolishing the death penalty. And, I mean, it is just so terrible there. You know, we hear news stories. We hear about the so-called black-on-black crime. You know, uh, oftentimes they don't sh find the people who killed all these black people, but we just assume that it's all black people killing black people. But I'm telling you, these cops man, in Chicago have been off the hook for some time and so this guy uh what was his name he's a chicago detective and he this is what the guardian uh guardian says 
um, the detective led one of the most shocking acts of torture ever conducted at Guantanamo Bay, and he was responsible for implementing disturbingly similar years-long regime of brutality to elicit murder confessions from minority Americans. They talking about black people. Okay, in a dark foreshadowing of the United States post 9-11, descent into torture, a Guardian investigation can reveal that Richard Zuli, a detective on Chicago's north side from 1977 to 2007, so he ain't been long retired, uh, repeatedly engaged in the methods of interrogation resulting in at least one wrongful conviction and subsequent cases more recently thrown into doubt following allegations of, of abuse. This was rampant all throughout uh, Chicago police history. Um, what's the guy named it? Tortured Mark Clemens when he was only 16 John years Burge. old. John Burge, yeah. Yeah, John Burge. None of these people have ever uh, been indicted for crimes, haven't been prosecuted. There many cases haven't even been any attempts. And so this is one of the people that has been torturing black folks for decades. And now he goes down there to Guantanamo and he c continues to do the same. So that's the story in a nutshell. Sick, sick, sick situation, America. And uh, Max, you know, what's your thoughts? Because, you know, I already ranted for an hour and a half on this earlier today. I just cannot believe America well, is so full of itself that it doesn't care about this kind of situation. Again, I, I like to look at this as evidence for future trials. You know, yeah. that, that's how I look at it, that this is the evidence we're compiling for future trials of crimes against humanity, human trafficking and slavery. So you can expect these things to occur in those circumstances. It's sh not shocking to us because we look at this as slavery. So we're like, okay, when you got slavery, these are the things that you're going to expect to see. But to the general population, they don't see it that way. So it comes as a surprise. They're like, how are these cops? Why are they doing that? They don't seem to get it. And if you got it, you would know exactly what's going on. And then you would start holding these criminals responsible for their crimes. Yeah, and he didn't have a problem with torturing females either because the story uh, cites a, a prisoner, an inmate right now, an enslaved person, Benita Johnson. Um, he tortured her into uh, confessing to a crime, and she got a 60-year uh, murder sentence. Uh, she said, basically, they just tortured me mentally and somewhat physically with the cuffs. Benita Johnson, an inmate serving a 60-year murder sentence, told the Guardian from pri from prison of the interrogation that led her, uh, to her convictions. So, can we look at uh from this? I mean, the, you know, you like you said, you gave it in a nutshell. He was a Navy Reserve Lieutenant, 25 years as a distinguished detective in Chicago. Known for getting these confessions out of people and nobody, nobody looked any, you know, one way or another at it. Now they already have all these corrupt officers in the, in the force as it is. They already have all these people they've been railroading and throwing into prisons as it is. They've already paid out all these settlements for people that do get exonerated. They've already reversed these, you know, convictions in some cases. I mean, they, so they already know that they have a problem in, their system, but then they turn a blind eye to a guy that's doing this exact same thing, 
even when they caught Burge, and even when, like you said, nobody got criminally charged, but even when they caught John Burge for what he was doing, and people like Mark Clemens start getting out, and they start being a, a name for what was going on, they have this guy working in tandem, and that's the same thing I expect to see come out of New York City with Louis Garcella. I expect fully to see several other officers get get caught up in, in this situation, and they'll be naming more names and naming more names of convictions that they got that were illegally obtained. <clears throat> and now we have the story that connects to this that talks about the, the CIA-style black site they have where they take these people and torture them. Yeah, and I believe we have a clip of one of these uh, gentlemen that's in the CIA black site or the CIA-style black site, which, of course, they're denying vehemently. Uh, and I'm hearing news coming out of it uh, continually. But I do believe we have a clip from someone that was there. The cell better the box, was cooled down to the point that I was shaking most of the time. For the next 70 days, I wouldn't know the sweetness of sleeping. Interrogation, 24 hours a day. I was living literally in terror. There's no reason for Mohamedou to be in Guantanamo. Mohamedou has never been charged with a crime. He's been in Guantanamo now 14 years. It's not that they haven't found the evidence against him. There isn't any evidence against him. Mohammed started writing in 2005. He had prepared 90 pages in a notebook that the guards had given him. That was the beginning of this manuscript. For a number of years, his attorneys conduct litigation and negotiations to get that manuscript declassified. Mohamedou is somewhat of a modern renaissance man. He is from a, the country of Mauritania. He's from a very poor family, but he won a scholarship to study in Germany as a very young man. Mohamedou had joined al-Qaeda in the early 1990s. Like many young men, he had gone to Afghanistan as a student to join the fight against the communist government of Afghanistan and to join the fight. You had to train at an al-Qaeda camp, and he had trained and he had sworn loyalty to them. But as he said repeatedly, he broke all ties after the communist government collapsed and the various Mujahideen factions started shooting each other. Mohamedou essentially said, I'm out. Mohamedou was at his mother's house in November of 2001, and he gets a call from the police to come and be interviewed. And he literally, I'm sure, told his mother, I'll be right back. And he, he disappeared, and his family has never seen him again to this day. There were four of them when I stepped outside the door with my mum and my aunt. Both kept their eyes staring at me. It is the taste of helplessness when you see your beloved fading away like a dream, and you cannot help him. He realized he wasn't going home when he got on an airplane, was stripped of his clothes. In August of 2002, he landed in Cuba, in Guantanamo. His family, of course, had no idea what had happened to him. And it was only when Yadi, Mohammed's younger brother, who lives in Germany, picked up Der Spiegel and saw an article in October of 2002 that Mohammed was in Guantanamo, did the family know where he had been held. Einfach, wir waren alle sprachlos. Wir kann uns eine Regelung so lange lügen, also und mit uns solche schmutzige Spiele machen. Wir waren alle enttäuscht von unserer Regelung. 
komplett. They were trying to frighten him so that he would tell them what they wanted to hear. They would come to him essentially and say, well, we know what you did. We just need you to tell us. We know you were involved in 9-11. We know you know these people. And they were on this kind of endless fishing expedition. And there was no truth to tell them. But that's what they kept saying. I'm going to do everything I'm allowed to to break you. You'll never see your family again. My answer was always, do what you got to do. I have done nothing. And as soon as I spit my words, he went wildly crazy, as if he wanted to devour me alive. Mohamedou. We'll stop it there, because this is like an eight-minute clip. And um, so, yeah, it's this lieutenant, what you say his name was, that's uh, going crazy on this guy. Uh, give me just a second, guys. Is right. Okay, yeah, we got you guys. Hello? Yeah, we, we have you, Max. Yep, Richard Zuli. There's uh, some things, man. Well, first of all, that writing kind of blew my mind, just thinking that, you know, how this is happening there. And we know it's also happening here under the same I was thinking way. about that young man that got snatched off the streets of New York for uh, right. Johanna. And you talked about him recently. What's that young man? They disappeared him into Rikers. Yeah, Khalif Browder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 16 right. years old, 15 years old at the time. Yeah. And so they was doing this also in Chicago. You know, they, I guess they had like a quote unquote black site, you know, uh, where they would take these people to torture them. Again, this is a report, an investigative report by the Guardian, which is a uh, UK uh, based uh, publication or news organization. But uh, yeah. I mean, and they say he was a racist too. Uh, there's one example where he said that, uh, Zuli had a racial animus as well. No niggas is supposed to live like this. He remembered Zuli telling him after the detective searched his expensive loft. And that was done when he arrested this uh, brother by the name of Boyd in 1990 and accused him of murder. And uh, some of the things that he's been charged with is uh, pretty par for the course for slavery, shackling suspects to police precinct walls, accusations of planting evidence, uh, threats of harm to family members, we just heard that in the clip. So you know what they're doing in Guantanamo? They're coming right back to Chicago, the same guy doing the same thing here. No, no, it was again. going on here first. Everything they've been doing to African-descended people, indigenous people from day one, okay, um, they have taken that to Guantanamo and exported it, I mean, overseas. They've been, it, you know, man, I don't want to go off on a long rant. But these these are all unconstitutional, illegal. This happens to millions of people, Max, every day in America. Every day, I know. Uh, been subject to it myself, just like uh, you have. Well, that's our second story. Uh, this. Brutal... Well, let's let's make look, before we move, if we can, if we no. got a, a couple minutes for the break, uh, let's move to the to the black site though. Yeah, that's what I was going to do, yeah. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, because, I mean, that to me, I think there's room for that. I think we need to have that discussion about potentially every city in America. Yeah, that's why I was saying metropolitan city about the black site. You know what What's I'm that? saying? You know, because usually we only think of that in terms of the CIA. They right. had black right. sites here, black sites there. Well, what are black sites? That's where they just kidnap people off the street and fly them there. 
Well, you disappear. Yeah, you disappear. No, your family don't know nothing. Just like this guy we just heard in this clip. So to me, this this is uh, that's a, a horrible situation, and we still have to wait to see the fallout that could result from that because they're still naming more names and they're still finding new people and he's, you know, more of his cases are coming up for review. And so this is something that's evolving. So like a lot of the stories that we report here on the program, you know, we'll be in the coming weeks, you know, steadily updating the, the listeners to what's happening. This situation with this black site, so this is connected to the Guardian investigation, <clears throat> excuse me, because the same gentleman, you know, as he's digging deeper and deeper to get information, he finds out that there is a, a the Chicago area, um, activism culture is aware of this and he's shocked to find out that people know that the police have had an empty warehouse that they keep military vehicles in and keep military grade weapons in and that they take people to and they don't have to book them in to any precinct they can just take them to this building and question them and torture them and keep them away from their families and from legal counsel. He found this out kind of like by happenstance, and the, the some of the people he was talking to in the Chicago area just were kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, we know it's there, but what can we do? Because the media doesn't want to cover it, and, I mean, what can we do? And this has been going on for at least, and I'm sure longer than that, but at least for 10 years. And at least one person was found dead in there. Was found dead in the place. How did, what kind of murder investigation is that? When, look, who look. did that murder investigation? Who did that homicide investigation? You, you never know how many people they have killed because they could just throw them out in the street and call it throw gang, you know, gang violence. Or and something. Yeah. Like they tried to do in Ferguson. So. When they had the sister that, that got, uh, that got shot to college, uh, a recent college grad that was down there that got shot and she survived. When and they went ahead. Yep. Yeah, and the, the brother died, and then they, they reported his, of course, as a drive-by shooting, and then she got shot the same night, and they tried to report hers as a drive-by shooting, but then she lived, and she said when she uh, was in surgery, the cops came in the room and took the, sh the bullets as soon as mm -hmm. they dug them out of her skull. Mm -mm -mm. And you never saw them again. They got conveniently yeah. lost. Yeah. Because it could yeah, be traced back to the policeman's gun. That was as simple as that. So, I mean, the the things that go on, and that's why I can't understand. I don't be trying to be anti this or anti that, but that's why I don't call myself African American. How can I identify with the American government or anything associated? You know, that's like guilt by association. If right. I don't say anything, just like if I was one of these Chicago police officers or a non-white police officer and I know that they are taking people here and beating them up and, and I'm seeing this, I'm not participating, but I don't never say nothing. I don't never become a whistleblower. I mean, I just keep my head down so I can keep collecting a paycheck and, and you know, I'm not going to report this crime, but I'm going to go out here in the streets and arrest other people for crime. See what I'm saying? So, you know, that's why you have to, if, if you consider yourself a good person, Good people stand up to evil. That's what they can't just go by and just keep. I could have done that. I've been put in a situation like that where a black female was on the job being sexually harassed by the vice president. And I witnessed this several times along with other uh black females that they were bringing. And this guy was a predator, man. He's a predator. 
And so when her lawyers contacted me about, you know, me being, did I witness this and witness that? I told the truth. I stood up because, you know, when I weighed it in my conscience, I figured I'd be a coward. I anticipated, well, you know, um, this could really hurt me from moving up or making more money or anything like that. This the vice president, this white dude. You know what I'm saying? So I I was like, I had to make that decision. I, You know, it was a fairly easy decision for me because I have a mother, I have a sister, and I have three daughters. So, yeah, um, I'm going to uh, tell the truth to in the legal proceedings of, for this black woman's complaint of sexual harassment. But a lot of people don't make those decisions, man. And, and in a lot of cases, it's dealing with life and death and human rights. That you're just turning a blind eye to. So that's why I'm saying, man, certain, I don't see how good people could be in certain professions where we find so much corruption like this. Yeah, they don't want to take responsibility for their entire uh, organization or its history, much like what America does when it comes to slavery. They don't want to take responsibility and they deny any effects of it even exist to this day. And I'm pretty sure they did the same thing in the 1800s. They were saying things like, you know, those blacks are so much better off. We treat them so well. We give them places to sleep and eat, and we give them chitlins on Christmas, and we let them sing on Sundays. They're happy. Why would you want to change that? You heard, dude, from Duck Dynasty. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a couple years ago when he came out. with, Hey, I grew up on the pl- I grew up on the we had the farm, the plantation. And I grew up with these black folks and the, the sons of slaves, grandchildren of slaves, and these people were happy. We used to sing, and they they believed in God, and they were honest, and they were they were uh, uh, they weren't criminals. They 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 uh, made babies when they was married to their wives, and made the babies, and they fed, you know all this old crap this dude had to say, and this fool really did say and really did believe that these black people. But then I saw another documentary that was talking about um. Uh, brother that had a had a, a restaurant and I, I forget the uh, Booker's Place is the name of it. It's a good one if you can find it on a, a Netflix, I believe. Anyway, he was the same way. His uh, the, all the white people that were in the room talking about the story were talking about how they were raised by their black mammies and they had you know the the black maid or had the black whoever that lived at the house with them and and you know would take care of them and they sucked from her breast and. That was the best love they ever knew. And they never even thought about how she had a family at home that was, you know, that was uh, struggling to eat. And they, they just, they were just breaking down. 50, 60, 70 year old white people sitting up here crying because they never knew that this woman was making pennies to let them suck milk out her breast and she go home. Her kids can't even eat. And they call her the best love. And so people are walking around in a damn cloud of delusion, man, just totally lost and stupid. For many, they don't even know what freedom feels like or what it's, what it is. So they confuse it with, uh, certain privileges given to you by your master. So oh, that's freedom. I get to have a choice between biscuits and crust tonight. I got freedom. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Wow. But, but, uh, yeah, we want to invite you to call and join the conversation with us today, uh, at 1-530-881-1400. Our access code is 549032-POUND. Press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. We welcome callers, man. We love to hear the perspective. Yeah, and, and diff- diverse viewpoints. If y'all think I'm being too hard on these black cops, y'all give me a call. <laughs> right, about, right. You know what I'm saying? That's how I feel. I mean, but I, I mean, yeah, I, I know that they're just an extension of white supremacy. That's what it is. I'm not blaming them for it. The system has been there for a very long time, but 
you do not have to cooperate with it. You don't have to fall in line. You know, that's why I got out the United States military. I had a conscious awakening after reading Malcolm X's biography while I was stationed in Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War. And I was, I got to get up out of here. You know, I can't continue to do this and, and allow myself to be a tool of white supremacy. You know, um, it was one thing in that story that also led back to what we were talking just a little while ago, where the Chicago civil rights attorney, Flint Taylor, said human, uh, Homan Square representative routinization of a notorious practice in local police work that violates the Fifth and Sixth Amendments of the Constitution. See, we were just talking about that. You're talking about constitutional rights and, you know, expressing yours as a policeman, but you're violating ours all the time. And uh, again, I want to point out how these people who are part of these large-scale oppressive organizations are trying to separate themselves from the organization while still being a part of the organization. Like, you know, I'm a good cop. Yeah, we're doing this as a whole, and we're doing that as a whole, but I'm not one of those guys that's doing this. Let me put it like this. Let's say I formed an organization called the uh, the group of murderers, right? <laughs> and in my group of murderers, I had 10,000 members, and they were all being trained to murder. But only one every 20 years murders somebody. Who's guilty? <laughs> right. You, you see what right. I'm saying? Just because you the don't kill somebody. The well, organization of slave kids. Right. Yeah, it doesn't mean <laughs> that you have to be actively involved in the immediate oppression to be assisting and supporting the act of oppression. School teachers, too. Yeah, same thing. Right. I mean, your very presence, your very participation is all that is required. If they say, hand me that screwdriver so I can tighten this screw on this big-ass bomb that's going to blow up New York and you hand them the screwdriver, you are freaking complicit. We're talking about uh, being complicit in the crimes and being complicit in the oppression and uh, the the breaking of constitutional laws. Um, again, with this story, I, w- I just want to shout out Chicago Justice Project. As a follow-up story to all of this, uh, both stories about the the uh, corrupt cop that was, you know, detective was going to Guantanamo, and then also the story about Holman Square. Uh, the Atlantic ran a story to follow up on this. And I mean, it, I, I at least felt like they were as incredulous as I am. Like, what in the hell? Like, <laughs> taken aback by all of this. Cause the, the Guardian story just tells it like it is. But the people of Chicago seem to be kind of just like, well, this is just the way it is. Tracy Siska, executive director of the Chicago Justice Project and a criminologist who herself wrote a corollary story for the Guardian on military interrogation tactics in the city spoke to this uh Tanya Basu from the Atlantic about police brutality in Chicago. Tanya asked her was why was Homeland Square unknown for so long? Tracy answers, I think it's because under the law people have a have a right to get counsel when arrested or when held, but you're not provided free counsel like a public defender. So she's saying if you have money and you've got a lawyer on retainer or you know somebody you can call and, you know, get them to come down there, and typically when you get arrested, then you that's somebody you have a relationship with or you can get a relationship going pretty quickly. But if you don't have money, then they're just going to get a public defender to you 
when it's time for you to go to court and face these charges. But when you're being stolen and snuck away to a black site, to yeah, a to an off-the-radar, off-the-grid mm-hmm. warehouse, there is no booking you in. There is no seeing the judge. There is no nothing. There is no lawyer. And these people know this, and attorneys have been going to this site to go get their clients, and the cops stand their guns drawn, telling them to get the hell out of here. So why has it? Why hasn't these attorneys in Chicago? I mean, have uh, there you go? Have any of them at any time, you know, reported this to their superiors, or did they just go along with the program? It well, seems to me people are going along with it. This this Siska, this from Chicago, she goes on to, in the interview to say. That, uh, because the, the, the interviewer from the Atlantic is, I mean, I can almost like see her face twisted up. Like, what the hell has been going on? And she says, there's a knowledge in the police accountability community. So she's talking about the, the grassroots or the, the, the activist community, like her being the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. These groups, she says, there's a knowledge within that police accountability community of what's going on. We knew exactly where the place was, but we couldn't get the press in Chicago to cover the story. We think it started during former Chicago Police Department Superintendent Phil Klein's time, which was between 2006 or 2007, and we think it lasted at least until about 2011 when the city had roving special units that worked directly out of the Holman Square location. The lady asked her, why wasn't the press covering it? She said, I think many crime reporters in Chicago have political views that are right in line with the police. They tend to agree about the tactics that are needed. They tend to have, by one extent or another, the same racist views of the police. Now, this went up into, if I'm not mistaken, well, that last story that we did, um, 2011, am I mistaken in that? That That's what she says, yeah. It allegedly closed down. Well, that was the year that uh, Rahm Emanuel uh, took office. And so and they threw that in there because he because it was elections today. Say that again. Today was they, ele- I, Chicago. Yeah, I think they threw that date in there doing some damage control. This this. Oh, so you saying it probably continued during his yes. watch as well? Well, I was yes. about to say I don't give people credit for saying well I, this was going on and I stopped it. You know, like we hear the current president of the United States, the, uh, you know, chief executive of the corporation, United States of America saying we stopped the torturing and all this and that. But you ain't prosecuting nobody. You're not leading the cause or using your bully pulpit to call for people to be arrested. You're not directing your attorney general to arrest none of these people on, on, on federal civil rights, uh, charges or anything, whatever. Bring them up on yeah. whatever. But they just get shuffled around. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like in case of the federal government's torture, CIA torture, the only person that I know of that's being charged and prosecuted is the brother who blew the whistle, who didn't turn a blind eye to it and said, these people was in here torturing and killing folks. And he's looking at 100 years. And the black man goes to jail. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He's yeah. the only one being prosecuted. The so. same thing with Enron and four black guys yeah. go to jail. <laughs> like right, all right. these rich white dudes involved in the Enron scandal, and all you can find is four black men. <laughs> so yeah. I don't give. I wasn't going to give Rahm Emanuel any kudos for allegedly shutting down this torture warehouse, but you know, impress me with prosecutions. Yeah. Right. And and that's part of the course for our system is that when they get cold busted, they sh- kind of put a stop to it 
if they have to, if their back's against the wall, but nobody ever gets prosecuted for anything. And nobody ever recognized crimes going on towards the past. That's why they always mm-hmm. go towards reform, because reform for them is a clean slate. See, it this is, you don't have to pay for nothing. This is also not that I'm advocating for, number one, I don't even consider myself American, so I really, you know what I'm saying? Either way, it doesn't matter to me really, but you know, uh, in, in terms of signing the international criminal courts, you know, uh, treaty, I think the United States and Israel, the only two that haven't, uh, joined the international criminal court, uh, which most recently announced an investigation into Israel because Palestine joined the international criminal court and so forth that, you know, the war crimes they committed last summer was it? You know, that's being investigated. And so the United States won't, won't sign that treaty because they don't want, you know, people, uh, quote unquote Americans being prosecuted by foreign courts. But th- this is one of the reasons why th- that, you know, they won't sign something like that. It's because there is no accountability. There's right. the, the number of cases where you might say justice was rendered or whatnot. The number is so insignificant that it doesn't do anything. You know, it, it, it just made, it doesn't even make a ripple in the pond. You know what I'm saying? Or the ocean. Throw a pebble in the ocean and see what kind of waves you make. None. It's insignificant. You know what I'm saying? Oh, hey, Clint Thompson, I like what you're doing up there as a district attorney. You know, get it in brother freedom people all right but you know there are not like hundreds of, or even a thousand i don't know how many prosecutors it is in the united states there are not a thousand uh ken thompson's in office no. No. that's the sad part man that's the sad thing that's those are things that we need to uh to explore as an as a movement <clears throat> Excuse me, because some of these things that we are we are experiencing now, some of the activist organizations and some of the the offshoots and you know the the innocence projects and you know exoneration type projects or what have you, some of these things are, are I mean, just like anything, uh, what do you say? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So as we move forward, as you know, at the forefront as much as we can be, as much as we can to our capacity as individuals on this program and then people that are in the movement that we're, that hear our voices now, as much as we can be at the forefront and see these needs, then we have to work together to establish something to facilitate change in those specific ways. So if some kind of way we can start working towards getting more, you know, like there are innocence projects and all that, but, but develop, I mean, we're the people. So are we supposed to be able to get what we want? Like we talked about with the direct democracy or working to, uh, some kind of way lobby the legislators to do what we ask them to do. We want to see conviction integrity units in every jurisdiction. Period. It's just like you. I mean, you can't you can't investigate crime without a forensics department now, right? You can't you can't have a police department without having the 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 CSI crew come out. So it should be just as important to have somebody that investigates the convictions because it's clear that. The ranks of the Brotherhood of Blue is not getting ready to police themselves. And you have the management first, is, is, they're not going to do anything. So somebody's got to police the convictions. They have to first, uh, accept the fact that they are capable of corruption. Cause they have, like, they are capable of corruption. Right, right. Like, you know, what are you talking about? We don't have to check for that. Nobody's doing that. Right. You're right. I realize when, as soon as you said it, I'm, 
man, I'm I'm talking way out of line. Just to even suggest that they that there's a problem, right? It, it's going to have to be on the outsides end, I think. Maybe get some of these young lawyers who are going. You know, so many people want to be lawyers these days. Yeah, let's get some of these young lawyers to donate their time to organizations like the Innocence Project, because we yeah. found uh, just from our guests who have come on that do things like this that the only thing stopping them from freeing more people is they don't have enough resources. It's really just yeah. that simple. You, if you have more yeah. people investigating, you find more Look, innocent man, people. They got resources. They got money. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm talking about the system, but uh, and if you're just talking about these grassroots organizations, grassroots organizations yeah, a lot like of one, those it, they only exist off of grants they get from the Justice Department. I did a story recently uh, on air. Uh, covering how the uh, justice system is funding both sides of it, funding the police and funding, you know, grassroots organizations that like, you know, get you off for uh, uh, wrongful convictions and provide you with legal assistance and whatnot for the indigent. They get grants. They get grants from from the Justice Department as well. So but, you know, um, it's even in terms of when you look at like the uh, public defender as was mentioned earlier we have heard for a long time that they underfunded understaffed you know tremendous caseloads and to the point that all they trying to do is basically clear cases and and talk people into pleading guilty for lesser charges after the prosecutor didn't stock the char stack the charges on them you know that instead of actually defending these people's innocence you know what i'm saying and um that money has been purposely uh, defunded for uh, uh, public defenders. While the prosecutor's office, he ain't got to worry about lack of funds. You know what I'm saying? They'll spend a million dollars on one trial. Yes, it easily. It's particularly big cities like uh, Chicago and New York and uh, Boston. They'll, they have unlimited funds when it comes to who they want to prosecute and why. So if you look at what the FBI did, for example, with Shakur, with the $10 million bounty on her head now. Like, that's your money they're offering to kill her. Right, right. The settlements, the abuse settlements, yes. Same thing. I mean, uh, again, we need to set up some kind of way to investigate these convictions because would it be cheaper? Could you operate a convictions integrity unit for... $10 million a year or less. I would venture to say you should be able to operate that. We need to find out like what kind of budget is uh, Ken Thompson running on? What, what, uh, what type of budget was the brother in Dallas working on when he was down there doing the same thing? And if we can show just like that's what they do with the private prisons is show them how they can save the state's money. I just read an article today where the, where the state is going to be able to do, uh, provide food services again, I believe it was in Ohio because they showed a, a savings over what Airmark was offering. And we talked about how Airmark is offering up maggot-filled food and moldy food and changing the dates on stuff that's out of date and sour or whatever. And uh, the the uh, state, whatever their facilities are, was finally able to put together, you know, food programs that came in like a dollar less per meal, and it ends up saving like $2 million a year. So they got the contract. So if we could show where... We could take that budget that like Philadelphia spends fourteen million dollars on on police abuse settlements, and Dallas spends twelve million dollars, and and L.A. spends twenty five million dollars a year on police abuse settlements. Can we get a convictions in, in uh, integrity unit and put it together for two million dollars a year and save you all these millions of dollars you're spending on this? Yep. 
might want to include a jury integrity unit in, in that as well. <laughs> you know, there was this study that came out where they were saying that 17% of juries are wrong in their convictions. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good idea. It's a, it's a, it's a great idea, actually. Um, and you know, before we get out of this story, I did want to point out one other thing from the, uh, the story about the black site, what they were saying about it. It's not like a precinct and, uh, no one is taken to Homan Square is said to be booked. This is how they keep them off the records. You know, it's just like Guantanamo Bay. The witnesses, suspects, or other Chicagoans who end up inside do not have, do not appear to have a public searchable record entered into a database. So that's how they get these people and keep them. Shout there. out, uh, shout out to uh, Nakima Levy Pounds, our, our good abolitionist sister, the abolitionist attorney that we've had on the program a few she times. She received an award too. Congratulations. Yes, she did. Attorney of the year. Yeah, so congrats congratulations. on that. Yeah. When, when y'all said that about we need to raise up more attorneys that are, you know, abolitionist minded and know, know what the score is and be, you know, what to aim for. I mean, that's, she's in a, she's a professor. She's teaching the attorneys of the future. So we need, you know, to support her and support what she's doing and expand on that, you know? So, so by all means, shout out, shout out to you, our abolitionist attorney sister. There is a great way we can do that. And, uh, I'll just say real quick before we go to break and then we're going to take a break, come back with our story about the Corizon doctor. But one of the ways as the abolitionist movement is maybe we can start a fundraiser and hold an award ceremony, an abolitionist award ceremony, and recognize people who are doing these things. And have some wonderful performers come out and talk about freedom and have some great speakers speak a few words and things like that, bring yeah. in a couple of celebrities, you know? It would be awesome, I think. I would I, like I to mention, though, Max, doing it. I would huh? like to mention that uh, the Black Talk Media Project, it has um, started its annual fundraiser. This is the second annual fundraiser the black talk media project which of course uh manages the black talk radio network so speaking of fundraisers um yeah mm-hmm. we're trying to raise some funds so that we can stay on air another year and not only stay on air but expand you know we like to expand and uh open up the platform to even more people and so we can only you know uh maintain what we have and uh improve upon what we're doing and reach even more people and give more people um you know a voice that has something to say um uh, um we're only able to do that because this is truly public radio you know don't get grants from the government don't get um uh corporate sponsorship you know we're not like you know some of these um organizations non-profit organizations like nan that takes money from like wells fargo which is the second largest investor in uh the geo group which is the second largest private prison enslaver in the world. So, yeah, um, if we need to keep this information flowing to the people, and we can only do that uh, by the will of the people to uh, contribute to the fundraiser. Please contribute a dollar, five dollars, a hundred dollars, whatever it is that you uh, have available, please contribute. And if you'd like to see us put together some kind of gala event like that, you know, and I think it would be a wonderful idea. I'm the guy that can put it together. I've got the history for it and the experience. And uh, if there's somebody out there that wants to see this happening and you've got some deep pockets, uh, hit us up. We'll make it happen. Indeed. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here at the blacktalkradionetwork.com. And we'll be right back after these messages.
see, that's, I mean, that's another thing. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence. Um, without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. On the other hand, uh, because of the way this society is organized, because of the violence that exists on the surface everywhere, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. You have to expect things like that as reactions. If you are a black person and live in, 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 in the black community all your life and walk out on the street every day seeing white policemen surrounding you, I... When I was living in Los Angeles, for instance, long before the situation in L.A. ever occurred, uh, I was constantly stopped. No, the, the, the police didn't know who I, who I was, but I was a black woman. I had, had a natural, and, and they, I suppose, thought that I might be a, quote, militant. And when you live under a situation like that constantly, uh, uh, and, then, and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parthas, Scotty Reed, and Johanna and Elijah. Um, man, I got to tell you, nothing would make me feel uh, more honored than to stand somewhere at this wonderful event and have Angela Davis come up and accept an award for being an abolitionist from an abolitionist organization. Considering yeah, she's the cool. one that made me start calling myself an abolitionist with her call for it. But I would love to be able to do that, to give that type of honors to the people who are fighting so hard and don't get recognized nearly as often as they should. Like yeah. you two brothers. Yeah, she uh, recently was speaking um, at um, Texas Tech University down there in Texas. And, you know, uh, conservatives and white people tried to stop her from speaking there. She, you know, didn't want her to get paid. She was invited by um, one of the professors who who put on this event for Black History Month, they even had Tom Joyner come out and speak. He just, you know, he's a radio personality, been in radio for I don't know how many, 20, 30 years, something like that. But um, they had like a lecture series, and, and so Tom Joyner was invited, uh, she was invited, and they even po posted a petition and tried to stop her. You know, from coming to speak, but they said that um, you know, she went, she spoke, said that so many people turned out that you know they had to set up a projection screen on the outside. I bet she's saying to herself, "Wow, this movement has grown so yeah, much." And she was there to talk about <laughs> slavery, twenty-first yeah. century slavery, prison industrial complex. That's what she was there to talk about. Yeah, man, I think that would be an, a moment in history where I would look around this room at all of these freedom fighters and abolitionists and in the back of my mind hear the prison industrial complex screech like a little girl <laughs> <laughs> like oh, oh bro no they didn't this is what is it super friends or justice league that came together yeah bro 
That would be amazing. Imagine having uh, Miss Pounds and uh, Miss Davis all at the same in the same room at the same time. Come on now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, our, <laughs> our next story is uh, Courthouse News Service regarding a doctor out there in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who has this tendency, no matter what is wrong with you, could it be a toothache or toenail fungus, constipation, well, maybe constipation in particular, but anything, it doesn't matter, if you've got a <laughs> splinter in your finger, he finds it necessary to stick his finger up your butt and uh, feel around without a glove. And there's quite a few uh, inmates that have been complaining about this. I'll read a little bit about the story. It says, a prison doctor in New Mexico sexually assaults inmates with rectal exams. So everything from tooth pain to toenail fungus, seven inmates claim in lawsuits. The prisoners, four in one case and three in the other, claim that Dr. Mark Walden, to say his name again, Dr. Mark Walden, regularly performed digital rectal exams for no legitimate medical reason, sometimes without wearing gloves, and fondled them inappropriately. Now, Brother Johanan, you and I had a conversation uh, yesterday, <laughs> and we was talking about, you know, again, how when you think of this as slavery, then you expect these things to occur. But this is like the uh, one of the requirements necessary for you to call it chattel slavery. There has to be some kind of sexual abuse also going in and involved where you have no control over your own body where people can shove their fingers up your butt or force you to have sex with them. And we've read about these stories over and over again. But here's one where the doctor is working for the prison. He's employed by the prison. So in for all intents and purposes, the prison is responsible for this. And they're sexually assaulting people for some weird little perverted guy's strange sexual uh, desires. It's just crazy, dude. You imagine being in there for a traffic ticket or something like that, you know, and maybe you got a sprained ankle because the cops threw you to the ground and you go to see this doctor. He's like, oh, your ankle sprained? Well, take off your pants and bend over. Hmm. No, I can't imagine that because that would be a day when my time got increased. <laughs> I, I'd get a, I'd get a ticket that day. I, I would end up in some sort of uh, administrative segregation. Uh, there would be some kind of repercussions handed down to me because there's no way on this earth. I mean, unless I was completely shackled and held down, and I mean, he just violated me like that. But no, I'm not going in there bending over for shit. <laughs> I came in here because my ankle is sprained. Matter of fact, I don't need no help. I'm cool. I'm going to hobble right on back out of there. But this is what mm -hmm. people got to deal with in these prisons, and they have no control over it. And let one of them complain, like we just heard about with the police. You see right. how it works. If they start complaining, the guards will come and hold them down with their ass in the air and hold right. their cheeks open, one on each side, so the doctor can put his ungloved fingers in there. Yeah, we got some problems, man. We we have some we have some issues. This is this is a straight up wheat and chaff type information right here. That's what this is. This th that's how I know we're on the right track. That's how I know that we are speaking for for the cause of righteousness. Because these people aren't revealing the good from the bad. No matter what they tell themselves, no matter what they convince themselves, their guards and and uh, doctors working in the prison system, and we're talking about police, and we're talking about prosecutors, and we're talking about all these people that work for the system that think they're identifying the good from the bad. But it doesn't require us 
to jam our fingers up people's buttholes. It doesn't require us to rape anyone. It doesn't require, an abolitionist movement doesn't require you to hold back uh, ladies' tampons and feminine toiletries that they need month to month uh, to get a blowjob. We don't impregnate people because we're abolitionists. We don't murder people because we're abolitionists. We don't boil people to death because we're abolitionists. We don't bake people to death because we're abolitionists. We don't sit up and look at people with their balls tied around, string tied around their balls for months until gangrene gets into their system. We don't look at young men with cuts on their feet until gangrene is in their foot and they stink so bad we drag them out their cell and wash them down with a water hose and then throw them back in the cell naked until they die. We don't let people sit up constipated for two or three weeks until they die because we're abolitionists. But all these heroes and all these people working for justice, they seem to have to do all of this to do their job. So you tell me which side do you think is the side of righteousness and you tell me which side is the side of the evil. You want to hear some sickness in this story too? And this, I'm like, what? Huh? It says, um, let me start from here. It says, the February 13th lawsuit claims the prison staff became suspicious shortly after Walden was hired. And the suspicions were based on a sudden, notable increase in volume of digital rectal exams being performed, unindicted digital rectal exams on young inmates, refusal by defendant Walden to have a third party present during exams, and, now this is the part that I was like, huh? And a lack of semen samples being sent to the lab for analysis. Mm. Now, someone tell me why the hell you need a semen sample in prison. And secondly, why isn't it being sent to the lab? Where is it going and what's being done with prisoners' semen samples? This sounds like this is sick. Yeah, I think you know. I think the listeners know where the semen's going. I think everybody knows where the semen's going. Because, see, if the semen wasn't disappearing before Mr. Finger Up Your Butthole came on the job, and then the semen starts to disappear after Finger Up the Butthole Man gets the job, I mean, who took the semen? I just hope he's not moonlighting as a restauranteer. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> he's doing some moonlighting, all right. Because <laughs> I ain't eating nothing he cooking. But just uh, just think about this though. This is the culture, man, and this is this is the thing again. Like we saw with the Wallace County deal, and, and uh, we st- hopefully we still get to cover that. Um, and we see uh, when we talk with uh was with a uh, Sister Don about uh, Adelanto, and we talk about these prisons across the country. First things first, these are in these rural areas, unincorporated areas. These people can barely get communication with their loved ones, their family let alone, you know, reach out to uh, legal representation, get somebody to see what's going on or just get a word out to somebody of what's going on. So these weirdos travel to go to a, a captive audience, literally, and go get these people that don't have any way to reach out to the world and do this stuff. I mean, he's just going out of your way to be a sicko, man. Well, there are sickles in our world, a lot of them, and a lot of them are in charge. We know for sure that there are quite a few sociopaths in charge of our country on many levels. Uh, if you're a member of any kind of hate group, you're a sociopath. There's just no other way around. It's as simple as that. And and that also includes certain segments of our police force and U.S. military. So, yeah, there are a lot of sociopaths out there right now, and this is one of them. That is a terrible 
story to hear uh, and uh, sick as it can possibly be right out there in Santa Fe, New Mexico right now. And, you know, this also reminds me of what's happening in Alabama with the women out there in Tutwiler. Yes. Because I still yes. haven't heard anything from there about these officers being prosecuted who are now consistently molesting and raping and abusing these um, pr uh, primarily black women in Tutwiler prison like 800 women and it's been happening for like a decade and there's just nothing else coming from this. We, we tried to expose this story. Maybe you'll help us uh, with that. Just, you know, uh, Google Tutwiler prison in Alabama, women's prison in Alabama, and you'll see all about it. Which is kind of, you know, reminds me of the Oscars thing with uh, Patricia Arquette, you know, <laughs> what she said, oh, yeah. what she said off the record was even worse. I thought, you know, I was saying like, you know, basically everybody owes women, particularly people of colors and gay because we don't. Right, all right. Uh, and now it's time for all of you to make wage uh, equality among women your priority. And I'm drink like, some bleach. Yeah, and I'm like, what? <laughs> so John Legend just told you <laughs> that we got more right. people in prison now than we had in 1850. But this is what you, you want us to invest our, our efforts in. You know, how can you, you know, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because I probably get a phone call from some feminist organizations telling me that, you know, both are worthy of talking about. Yes, a cold and a heart attack are both worthy worthy of talking about. But right. both of them don't have the same effects on society. We're talking about slavery and human trafficking and the abuse that we just reported to you tonight going on. And, you know, for you, you want us to stop that. And make sure you get an extra 30 cents an hour when you, Patricia Arquette, really don't need no money. Mm. Yeah. I mean, really, to, to, to give yourself, in essence, a ringing endorsement as having been a part of uh, civil rights movements that, like you said, John Legend turned around and tell you that the numbers are as great as they are. We lead the world 25% of the planet's incarcerated population, but only 5% of the population of the Earth. and you come in and say that you owe us for all that we did. Uh, evidently, what you did didn't do jack shit. So you really aren't doing, I mean, what are you doing standing there saying that you owe us for all that we did for you? What did you do for us? We're in slavery. Oh, man. As a matter of fact, step away from, step away from the civil rights movement, please. If you really are concerned I don't need you in this with women's rights, you would go to Tutwiler, Alabama and do something about those women over there. Exactly. You go to this, these people right here who we just talked about in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who are being prodded in, in their those, anus. You know what did, I mean? We those, did a, that right. really should be concerned. Max, didn't we do a report on uh, in a Michigan's women's prison where they was hog yes. tying them females? And Texas. Right. Yeah, naked. Hog tying uh -huh. them butt naked, leaving them on the floor, starving them. Yeah. It, yep. I never see any of these uh, feminist groups like what's that one called Violet something you know uh, anyway yeah I agree with you you know women are being abused by the hundreds of thousands probably I don't know how many men, women it's exactly the fastest are. growing population in the prisons yeah the so I think I read some statistic like 600% you know increase in black women I thought above. 800 yeah you, 800, you know so, we not man. stop everything and fight for wage increase but well, what about the wage increase between the men and women in the prisons? Because, you know, the men are making 11 cents an hour and the women are only making six. Unequal slave wages. Yeah, this is the thing. They don't know because, I mean, to a degree, the John Legend comment, uh, to me, 
yes, I'm glad it was on the international stage and then you got the word out so people that many more people know. But you you know when these people are reading prepared statements or you know when they're saying something, somebody put a bug in their ear about it or whatever, because when you really know what you're talking about, then you can bring that passion to it and you can bring some informed information to what you're saying when you got that moment to spit it out there instead of just throwing out, you know, kind of a, a blanket statement that you know can easily be torn apart and then you kind of lose some of the momentum when everybody starts analyzing what you threw out there and really with her situation the same way when she said what she said clearly she doesn't know much about women's sufferation in this country she just had a talking point somebody gave her they probably gave her one of them uh, what they call them a swag a free bag full of you know twenty five thousand dollars worth of crap from barney's or something you know just for saying what she said and she went on home she don't you know, really care. I got three daughters, a wife. Uh, I'm an advocate for women's rights. But first, I'm an advocate for freedom. Because, you know, if women who are outside are getting equal pay, it's still there's still going to be people enslaved in these prisons, including women. Are they forgotten? I mean, shouldn't you start right. from them? If that's what you're looking for is equality, start with the people who need it the most. Isn't that a good place? I'm just saying. Well, we have some... Uh, commentary that we're going to play coming up right now from the Black Talk Radio Network. And then after that, we're going to take a quick uh, identification break and want to come back with the biggest story, really, which is the slave rebellion. Because, you know, I'm looking at this as a moment in history that should be marked right now as the beginning of something. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio, and we're going to come on with this commentary right now. Singer John Legend and Common both won an Oscar for the song Glory, which is on the soundtrack for the movie Selma. What is noteworthy for me is not the Oscar win itself, but what John Legend said during his Oscar acceptance speech. While Legend fell short of calling mass incarceration what it really is, constitutionally protected slavery, abolitionists still applaud him for using the word slavery in the same sentence as correctional control. We live in the most incarcerated country in the world. There are more black men under correctional control today than there were under slavery in 1850, Legend said while accepting his award. What abolitionists point out is that mass incarceration is slavery, prescribed by the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. When major corporations across several industries exploit hundreds of thousands of captive people's labor in America and their paid literal slave wages, you get the picture of the slavery that still exists. When you look at the number of those who are beaten, raped, and murdered by correctional officers every year, imagine the beatings, rapes, and murders that occurred on plantations pre-1865, and you get a clearer picture of modern slavery in America. When you consider the widespread use of law enforcement tactics like stop, question, and frisk, the quota system police use as they virtually profile black people, think of the slave patrols of old and all the stops, questions, and frisks they did to the many African-descended people they came across on the road. And you begin to get the true picture of modern-day slavery and human trafficking in America today. Modern abolitionists appreciate Mr. Legend using his moment of personal achievement to tell the world that things are not so good for many, many black people in America, and it looks a lot like slavery. This is Scotty Reed for the Black Talk Radio Network. Visit us online at blacktalkradionetwork.com. The U.S. has the fastest growing prison population in the world. Well, it's like the real estate boom. 
Except, of course, the problem with real estate. You eventually run out of land. You never run out of people to put in prison. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Our next story is on the slavery revolt out in Willacy County in Texas. Uh, don't they call that Ritmo, Scotty? I don't know. <laughs> Johanan wrote that on his promo for today's show, so ask him. Yeah, yeah man. Well, you know, I, I know I you two. it was something he, he gave it a name to, Ritmo. <laughs> you two have really uh, fleshed this out and talked about it. Me, I'm the simple-minded one. I know enough to be Basically, I can figure all of this out with just a few sentences, but I, I, I'd love to hear, I know our audience wants to hear you guys break it down based on your research. From Scotty, you said that the story is still unfolding and it's uncovering a lot of new stuff as well. Um, yeah, um, we linked to the article I actually had wrote on it because I didn't like the language that was being used um, to describe this event that's going on uh, in Texas right now. Almost, right, I would say it's within at least 50 miles of the uh, border with Mexico. And so this is in Raymondville, Texas, uh, 1800 Industrial Drive in Raymondville, Texas, the Willacy County Correctional Center. Now, it's two prisons there. It's one that, that Google Maps lists as an adult correctional facility, but the other one is uh, listed by Google Maps as an immigration detention facility. So, um, Anyway, uh, these guys decided that they were going to stop working. They said, um, I'm talking about those enslaved down there, uh, mostly uh, for minor offenses, uh, immigration uh, violations. Uh, I understand the president gave a speech around 8 o'clock tonight, and he was talking about, you know, um, uh, with the Republicans, talking about they're not going to fund uh, homeland security, which I ain't got a problem with that. Defund the government, defund all of it. You know what I'm saying? But, but what they're angry about is that, you know, the president is trying to do immigration reform, which would allegedly pull, you know, 11 million undocumented immigrants out of the shadows. Well, of course, we know, um, these companies like the one that is running Willacy County, uh, what is the name of it? Uh, I don't see it right in front of me. It is the Management and Training Corp, MTC. All right. And, uh, this is their, they have a private contract with the Federal Bureau of Prisons to operate this tent city because that's all it is. So their operating costs can't be that high. They just throw up tents, you know. Why like, is the tent city, Scott? Yeah, like Joe Arapayo down there in Arizona, you know, probably feeding them green bologna too. But, um, these particular uh, enslaved individuals said, you know what, the uh, health care is pretty crappy here, and so we are not going to go to work until we get better health care. We are going to stop working uh, as we assert our human rights. And so, you know, about, I think, almost 3,000 people are, are housed at this, this immigration detention facility. Um, so... Um, I heard there were some minor injuries, uh, a couple of guards and one, um, one inmate, but largely it has been peaceful. 
uh, so to speak. But I noticed, you know, they did set a couple of fires to a couple of the tents and whatnot. And so I noticed, though, you know, from the uh, footage I was watching about it as it unfolded, uh, you know, all these cops and even people in plain clothes, you know, they might have been off duty, you know, with shotguns and, and surrounding the place, ready to gun down any individual, you know what I'm saying, that, that climb that fence, even though, you know, they're all quote unquote low level offenders or whatnot, you was going to get gunned down, you know what I'm saying? So, um, that's the, that's the basic, um, nuts and bolts of, of this particular story. Um, but, uh, one of our members of the group, uh, Footprints, I believe is the name, uh, that they go LLC. Say that again. Footprints LLC. Yeah, posted a story in our group move to abolish 21st century slavery uh, that updates this story and gave more information about Management and Training Corporation. Now, Management and Training Corporation had a prior contract with the federal government through ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And because of rapes and beatings and, and other human rights abuses was occurring, ICE terminated the contract with Management training corporation um but i guess the federal bureau of prisons didn't get the memo on that and awarded them a 10-year contract and so but they're still housing immigrants uh undocumented workers and whatnot so you know that's just pretty interesting it goes to show you that this is just a game this is just a game that should not happen if if, if you got a company that you know, and I didn't read that anybody was convicted for any of the crimes that were committed, you know, but um, you would think a company would be forever banned, you know, after something like that from contracting uh, with the federal government. But the way, I guess the way the federal government um, is looking at it, like, well, that might have been a year or two ago, and that's probably faded from most people's memory. So we'll just go ahead and use them over here, you know, for the uh, F, um, FOP you know, the Federal Bureau of, of Prisons. So the BOP, I meant to say. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, Johanny, you got any thoughts on it? Did you read anything else? I know you had provided some coverage on the, um, I think, what, MTC is actually using another private contractor for medical care, or is it in-house? Uh, they were using in-house, from what I understood, but their numbers were just ridiculous. They were reporting, like, 138,000 doctor visits, I think, per year and, uh, 30 or 40,000, uh, uh, dental appointments and, and, you know, like really putting it out there like they were taking care of people's health. Right. And, right. Probably charging the government for it and not providing the care. Oh, no doubt. In that time. No doubt. This, yeah. <clears throat> this prison down here was uh, under a 10 year contract for over $500 million. Half a so, billion. One company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when this happened and they have to move out and, and, uh, for the people, you know, maybe don't know the story, the, the, the jail, there was originally a jail started out with 800 person capacity. And after what Scotty mentioned with the, uh, with the, uh, the rapes and the beatings and the tortures and all the stuff was going on and they lost that contract with ICE. Um, this was in the middle of the time when ICE was expanding contracts with all of their private prison contractors that are willing to put, uh, these detainees in, in, in house or whatever every day. So remember we talked about over the last year. Or so we talked about the 34,000 prisoner uh, detainee per day minimum that's yeah, mandated by Congress. 
Yeah. So so those people have to go, you know, to these various detention centers. And Geo Group is steadily expanding and building new ones. We talked about with Sister Don about uh, Adelanto putting in a fourth and fifth prison yep. in the same town. I mean, this is where they're sending these people is to these kind of places. So MTC had that contract with ICE. They lost it because of what was going on. It was an 800 bed facility and they were already in the process of expanding it, but then they lost the contract. Well, then they got picked up by the Bureau of Prisons and they were able to put up these tents in 90 days. And they were saying that it was yeah, 2000. It was, say that, man. They, it wasn't that quick, was it? They thawed yeah, up a yeah. prison in 90 days. Tents. Yeah. 200 man tents. Yep. Yes. 10, 10 pods with t- uh, 200 men in them apiece. There's three feet of space in between each man. And the number one complaint of the detainees that were being held there, the slaves that were being held there, was that every night the bugs come in through the cracks in the plastic. It's a tent. It's like a circus tent. They said bugs come in through the thing. There's nothing stopping the outside world from coming inside. So you sleep in there and you're getting tore up by scorpions and spiders and whatever the hell else comes in in the middle of the night and nobody cares. And now that they started moving people out, the truth came out that it wasn't. So this is a 10, uh, 10 tenths, 200 man capacity, two, uh, 2000, uh, people and they moved out over 2,800 people out of the prison. Wow. I read it was almost 3,000. Yeah, almost 3,000. Yeah. So, so over capacity like that in a tent. We talk about places like Alabama that has 200% capacity. This is far beyond 200% capacity. You have a place built for 800. Holding right. three thousand, right? <laughs> you know what is that like? Three hundred and fifty percent capacity, mm. right so there. So, like I said, we on the side of righteousness because all we need to do is tell the truth to tear up our enemy. All we got to do is just tell the truth, and they whole stuff starts to fall apart. I like, mean, it was too is cheap, Johanan, to even buy some new tents, some extra <laughs> tents. You know what I'm saying? How cheap yeah. is that? Here's some new yeah. news to me in here in this story as well that I didn't know of. Uh, they say basically that in 2013, nearly a third of all federal criminal cases related to border crossings in Arizona and New Mexico and Texas, they represent 80% of the federal criminal docket. That's some exploitation for you right there. Yeah. Man. You know, yeah, we, we talked about it was 90,000 cases. 90,000 cases. Now yes. I know, I know it's some people out there that's saying, you know, well, they're Ill- illegal immigrants and they ought to be locked up. They shouldn't came to the land of opportunity, freedom and liberty for justice for some. All right. That's probably, pro- <laughs> I know it's some people out there thinking that and they ought to respect the border. Let me say, ask you this question. Does the United States government respect any borders? You know, somebody actually said that and worse to me earlier today. Yeah, a friend really? of mine said, uh, you know, because I told him the story about what was happening, and he said, well, if they're crossing over into our borders illegally, then they deserve to be exploited like that. And I'm like, huh? And this was a Caucasian guy, of course. So, and I'm like, so the next time, do- ask him that question when you when you talk to him again. Does the United States respect borders? I mean, they kidnap people from countries, and they do illegal wars and all over the globe, and they don't care nothing about no borders, you know what I'm saying? And certainly these corporations don't care nothing about borders, you know? So I don't, you know, I don't want to hear about somebody being enslaved after corporations and the U.S. government through the drug war has pretty much destroyed 
you know, it made it so unsafe that uh, parents were willing to chin- send their children unaccompanied to the United States to escape the violence and the poverty. So, you know, and that's all the United States is responsible and the corp- other corporations are responsible for all of these people coming here. Do you think they want, actually wanted to come here? No, does the, 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 um, situations, the living, uh, conditions have been created in their con- home countries where they're coming from by United States corporation, U.S. foreign policy, drug war. And so they're, they're coming here. And, and so now you're like, well, you know, let them come. What was Geo Group saying? You know, build it and they will come. These prisoners will come. These slaves for us to expose. And so that's why, you know, they really don't want to do any kind of immigration, comprehensive immigration reform. You got lobbyists that's actively lobbying against that. Well, across let, let several mention, industries that use prison slave labor. Right. Let me mention also with this story, uh, since we talk about MTC's history of corruption and uh, these contracts they've been in or whatever, uh, there were the only criminal case that I was able to find uh, associated with MTC in this area. There were guards that were caught in full uniform driving in uh, the, the, the the prison marked van carrying 28 individuals across the border into the United States. They got busted by the Border Patrol. So, I mean, I don't know what anybody makes to that, but seems to me that's pretty foul. You go over into Mexico. Okay, your business is to detain illegal immigrants. That's how you got a $500 million contract out of the U.S. government is to go and, and, and detain these people until we either deport them or whatever, deport them or put them in slavery, whatever. And as your job is to be a guard at this prison, you get in the van and you go across the border and bring people in the vans. I mean, if they had 28 people in the van the time they got caught, how many have they brought here? And how many of those people ended up in the jail that they work at? You know, uh, yeah. Just just to finish off about what the comment that was made to me earlier today in person, I told the brother, or the, uh, he's a brother, Caucasian, but he's a brother. I told him, I said, look, first of all, if you have a uh, if you believe that it's okay to enslave anybody, then you and me have a problem. <laughs> for sure. But secondly, you don't understand what happened. believe in there. <laughs> you know, secondly, he don't understand, Tommy, you don't understand what's happening here. These people are being warehoused and exploited for the funds that come through the justice system in the numbers of the billions. They're, most of the people who are there, the vast majority are there for border crossing infractions, or for minor drug charges. And they're being exploited because the longer they stay there, the more money these prisons make. And the conditions they're existing in is inhumane. You got people, 3,000 people living in freaking tents, being eaten alive by bugs and being refused medical attention. So hopefully I helped him to understand a little clearer what's going on. But often we run with that rhetoric of, well, if they're doing such and such wrong, they deserve it. We're coming, uh, I guess we should come into our next uh, segments, Cody. Yeah, let's uh, move quickly through our uh, last two segments, um, the uh, abolitionist profile and the writer of the 21st century underground okay. railroad. 
Well, I guess we could start with our rider of the uh, 21st Century Underground Railroad. Uh, we have uh, this is one of my last three segments. And every week now, since we stopped doing the examination of state profiles, that was completed the entire year of 2014. You can go into the archives and find state-by-state state examination of every constitution. But since we stopped doing that, we began doing uh, our riders of the Underground Railroad. And this week's rider of the Underground Railroad is a woman who was exonerated after 17 years in prison. Um, Johanna, would you like to do this or you, you want the abolitionists? All right, well, I guess I'll do it then. Uh, so, the story. Man, my, my mic was, was muted. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I try to stay off until it's time to be on. I cut my yeah, mic I, off. I, uh, I do the same thing. Yeah, I can, I can cover it. That's fine. This is, uh, Susan Marie Mellon, uh, 59 years old. She did 17 years in prison for the death of a homeless man. Uh, this is a story from, uh, Yahoo News. Um, it says, a woman who spent 17 years in prison for the death of a homeless man hugged her grandchild for the first time and did a dance of happiness on Friday after she was judged innocent of murder and freed. Uh, I always knew that one day God would bring the truth to the light. Susan Marie Mellon, 59, told reporters after she was released from a Torrance County, uh, Torrance co- courthouse shortly before 6 p.m. About eight hours earlier, a Los Angeles County judge overturned her conviction, saying that her attorney failed to properly represent her and that a woman who claimed she heard Mellon confess was a habitual liar. I believe she is innocent, Superior Court Judge Mark Arnold said. For that reason, I believe in the in this case, the justice system failed. The courtroom burst into applause after his ruling. Based solely on witness testimony, Mellon was convicted of orchestrating the beating death of Richard Daly at a Lawndale home where Mellon and others lived. The mother of three was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She was embraced by her three grown children after her release. Mellon shrieked and clapped her hands and kissed and hugged her 19-month-old grandson, Aiden. First time I've held him, she <clears throat> she told reporters, I'm a free woman now. Let me do the running man, she said, and did a few jogging dance steps before the mics. She joked and beamed, but also described her imprisonment as a cruel punishment. I, I will cry every night in prison, she said, but never lost faith and even wrote freedom on the bottom of my tennis shoes because I knew one day I was going to walk free. Mellon's case was investigated by Deidre O'Connor, head of a project known as Innocence Matters, that seeks to free people who are wrongfully convicted. The witnesses who claimed she heard Mellon confess was June Petty, who had a long history of giving false tips to law enforcement, according to documents in the case. She died in 2006. Three gang members subsequently were linked to the crime, and one was convicted of the killing, Another took a polygraph test and said he was present at Daly's killing and Mellon was not there. In a habeas corpus petition, O'Connor said the police detective who arrested Mellon was also responsible for a case in 1994 that resulted in the convictions of two men ultimately exonerated by innocence projects. So this another sounds like pick a nigga to me. Was man, a, just another Scarcella, another yeah. Zurley, another uh-huh. Burge, another. And wow. another, and another, and every yeah, city some clan stuff going on there. Minus. Just pick a nigga, anyone to do. It don't matter. Yeah. Well, well, congratulations on your freedom, Susan Marie Mellon. We salute you here at New Abolitionist Radio, and also big shout out to the Innocent Matters. That's another organization apparently that helps to free people on this 21st century underground railroad. And this week's writer was Susan Marie Mellon. Sound like future uh, abolitionists uh, <laughs> that we will uh, highlight. 
Dude, if we do that freaking, uh, you know, uh, awards thing, we could bring all of them people together so they can start rubbing elbows and, and planning together. That'd be, uh, again, I think it's awesome. Uh, I'm in my mind, I'm working on it already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. Well, right. that's our 21st century rider of the underground railroad. Uh, exactly what we needed in this generation. And our next segment is abolitionist in profile. And this week's abolitionist in profile is Samuel Eli Cornish, 1795 to 1858. Um, Samuel Eli Cornish, again, as Max says, 1795 to 1858, was an American Presbyterian minister, abolitionist, publisher, and journalist. He was a leader in New York City's small free black community where he organized the first congregation of black Presbyterians in New York. In 1827, he became one of the two editors of the newly founded Freedom's Journal, the first black newspaper in the United States. In 1833, he was a founding member of the Interracial American Anti-Slavery Society. Cornish was born in Sussex County, Delaware, to free parents of mixed race. As a young man in 1815, he moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which had a large community of free blacks. And after moving to New York City in 1821, Cornish organized the first congregation of black Presbyterians in the city. Um, When Cornish was ordained in 1822, his parish was officially established as the New Demeter Street Presbyterian Church, making it the first black Presbyterian church in New York City. He later ministered at the first African Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and Emmanuel Church in New York City. Cornish held high-ranking positions within the American Bible Society and the American Missionary Association, which was founded in 1846. He was one of the four founding black members. There were a total of 12 founders. In March 1827, he became one of two editors of Freedom's Journal, the first black newspaper in the United States. The other editor was John Rossawarm. It was intended to serve the 300,000 free blacks in the country, and especially New York's community, as well as to offset the racist commentary of local papers in the city. They was getting their anti-propaganda efforts on. Cornish left the paper in September 1827, returning two years later. During this time, Rosserwan had advocated colonization in Africa for free American blacks and lost many readers. He immigrated to Liberia in 1829. Cornish returned to the paper and tried to revive it, changing the name to the rights of all, but the paper folded in less than a year. Cornish later was editor for Colored American from 1837 to 1839. Uh, let's see. Now in 1833, Cornish was one of the founding members of the American Anti-Slavery Society whose membership and leaders were interracial. He was active with them until 1840. That year, he left to join the newly formed American and Forum Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, largely because of disputes with William Lloyd Garrison over religion in the abolitionist movement. Cornish used his position as a journalist and editor to inform the public on the issues involving abolitionism. Uh, Cornish died on November 6, 1858, in Brooklyn, New York. He was 63 years old. 
Salute. Samuel Eli Corns. Salute. Salute. So, Brother Scotty Reed, how does it feel to meet one of your temporal counterparts? <laughs> um, I, I won't meet them until I, you know what I'm saying, cross over to the other side and join the ancestors, which I hope ain't no time soon. But I, I especially uh, appreciate the work of early propagandists because that's really what they were engaged in. I mean, they were engaged in, you know, just informing people on the facts of the things. And, but of course, you know, adding commentary and opinion. And they said that they established that paper specifically to counter the racist papers of the time. So this propaganda, racism and propaganda has, has gone hand in hand for a very, 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 very long time propaganda has always been a major part of any kind of war effort and if you wage a war on people you got to demonize them dehumanize them and and then you know get the general wider society or public to go along with their mistreatment it's all about that brain programming it's it's not really brainwashing cause to say brainwashing is to wipe somebody's mind uh clean uh, no, they are programming their minds with a whole bunch of garbage like, you know, saying that Lincoln freed the slaves, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery because they just don't know because that's what they've been programmed with through media, whether it be print, television, um, the school system, school curriculum, what have you. All of it's propaganda. So, yeah, big shout out uh, to one of um, I, I would call a, a personal hero. In terms of uh, broadcasting and, and, you know, publishing. An example of counter-propaganda, what we're doing right here, is the propaganda that the abolitionist movement was primarily a, a male, white, Christian movement. We're here at New Abolitionist Radio. Week after week, 95% or better of our abolitionists we have profiled have been men and women of color. And that just blows their story right out the window right there. Right. And we've been on air now for three years. So that's every week, another African-American abolitionist in profile. We've profiled a couple of non, non, non-black non people. And yeah, that's John it. Brown. That's 5%. Yeah, John Brown, others. You know, yeah, we give them their due now, you know, because, uh, <laughs> I mean, it takes something. It takes something in you, you know, to uh, go against the grain of white supremacy. You know, I mean, like some of them were attacked. So we know John Brown was hung. So, but again, the number of them are so insignificant. You know what I'm saying? That, Buley. Yeah. Yeah. Buley. Yeah. Buley as well. Uh, yeah. So yeah. But the vast majority, Max is correct. Of the abolitionists we talk about are black people. And again, you know, it's like 300,000 free black people. That's a considerable amount of, of people. Back in those times, you know, I was just mentioning to Johanna yesterday as we were pre- preparing for today's broadcast. Black free people, I meant to say. I was saying right. that uh, when you look at it in a, uh, the terms of percentages, we actually have more abolitionists now than we did in that period of time. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> we at that time it was only five percent of the population was professed abolitionists, but it was such a small percentage compared to three hundred and twenty million that we have now. So we have 320 million citizens. I would say that there's like thousands of abolitionists out there right now, not tens of thousands. Yeah, and just to think what they were able to accomplish. Now, we know that they was betrayed by Lincoln and the 13th Amendment, and the South really won the war 
when you look at the language of the 13th Amendment, it says, hey, wait a minute, dog. We're going to let y'all keep practicing slavery. But first, you know, we're going to have to constitutionalize it. And you got to go by what's prescribed in this amendment. So hold your horses there. You know, y'all still going to get to exploit all this free black labor. Just, you know, give it some time. Yeah. So, well. Indeed. Once again, salute to the brother who was an anti-propagandist back in the day. Our, our forebears, uh, like I said, you know, somebody that, uh, doing exactly what Scotty Reed is doing today, championing the cause and, uh, fighting for the rights of people they never even met. Well, that was our, our abolitionist in profile. Every month here is Black History Month. Our final segment is where we give our, you know, uh, last statements of the day and share a few things with you. Uh, oh, got a message. Go. Let's, okay. That's what I'm doing right now, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> or do you want to skip the final statements? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, that's not what I'm saying. Oh, okay. Well, here's, uh, our last segment of the evening where we give our final statements for the evening. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Which one of you brothers would like to start this evening's last statements? Uh, I'll start. Um, I guess it's my heart habit to start, but I'll start. Uh, Again, big shout out to Samuel Cornish, uh, because media, like Malcolm X said, is one of the most powerful entities on the face of the planet because it controls right. the minds of the masses. Well, he didn't say one of the most. He said it is the most. Uh, when you look at uh, the genocide that uh, the Nazis uh, committed, that was preceded by a propaganda campaign through media uh, before they went on, you know, to kill 11 million people. If we go back further than the Nazis, back to the 1800s, going all the way back now to the early 1800s, now we see where media was used to, you know, uh, do the same thing, demonize black people, racist newspapers, you know, certainly, you know, they were advocating for slavery and things of that nature, or just the same as we see uh, Fox News bringing on people to advocate for slavery and tell you how you can make money investing in it. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, um, media is very important. And so if you think what we do as a network is important, we hope that you will contribute to uh, the Black Talk Media Project 2015 uh, fundraiser because this is what why we do what we do, is to inform the masses, program them with the correct information, you know, about slavery and what's happening to us as a people and not only discussing what's happening to us, but hopefully trying to come up with some solutions and I've heard many solutions, but like I heard some brothers call in to um earlier on the network on, I think it was the Tando radio show. We need some action, you know, and, and Johanna, and I think, you know, you use that word a lot, actionist, you know, like I was calling for the members in the group. Thank you for joining move to about 21st century slavery and human trafficking. But, we appreciate you seeking out this knowledge and considering yourself a new abolitionist. But please, when we post calls to action, please take action. Because it's not like we asking you to pick up rifles and meet us at such and such place. And, you know, we're going to overthrow the, the overthrow the man. No, we just asking you to make phone calls to a prison and ask them, why are you denying this man treatment? Uh, he's been in the cell bleeding for three days. And so what you going to do about that? You know, is that correct? Is that correct for you to do that? Is that even legal? Or, or is that in y'all policy? Should y'all be denying this man uh cancer treatment? You know, things as simple as that can save one life. You know what I'm saying? 
And so, you know, it's, it's worth the effort. That's the very least you can do. So yeah, we need more actionists and, uh, let's make that the theme for 2015. Right on, right on. I just want to, uh, uh, thank everyone that has shown support for the abolitionist daily, um, growing audience, growing following, uh, direct offshoot of this program. And I'm forever grateful to uh, both of you guys, Max and Scotty, for giving me an opportunity to become a part of this show and, and this program rather, and, and, you know, continue to, to try to grow the abolitionist movement and make our soldiers aware, uh, equip our, our people, uh, with the facts the information laid out clearly, show the, the clear narrative, connect the dots, paint the picture, all that good stuff. So I'm um, just thankful for, for that opportunity and just want to thank all the people that follow that program on a daily basis here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Like Scotty said earlier, this is a uh, a fundraiser year. This is a fundraiser uh, that, we, that we're that uh, we going forward with it, with the network, uh, blacktalkmediaproject.org or right here on blacktalkradionetwork.com. You can find the the, uh, the the little buttons you can click and make your donations or, or send it in or however you can get it. If you want to come put it in one of our hands, uh, send me a private message. I'll meet you somewhere and take that paper bag from you. Make sure Scotty Reed gets that. Um, but definitely, I mean, it, it has to happen, as you just heard with the abolitionists of the day. Um, and as we know, the abolitionists of, of back in the day, what they did would, you know, sit up and hand write <laughs> propaganda. You know, you, you want to reach... Uh, 10,000 people. Well, I guess we need, you know, however many people to write 10,000 pamphlets. It was that serious at one point and, and it's that serious now, but we have all this technology and we have all of these, these things in place where we can reach each other and we can come together. So let's make sure that we do, um, heed the abolitionist call to action. Um, make sure you make these conversations that you're having at the water cooler work. Make sure this is what you're forcing people to discuss if they want to talk to you. When you're at church in the parking lot or when you at, you know, on, on the way to the, to the dinner, you know, everybody want to meet at Golden Corral after church or whatever, you know, just, just bring up something about, man, did you hear about what they are doing in Chicago? Did you hear about what happened down there in Texas? Just throw it out there and start making people uncomfortable and find out. I mean, do you want to be in company with people that don't care? Do you want to be friends with demons and people that, that like the evil and don't want to speak on it? Or do you want to find out who's the champions and align yourself with the warriors? and start doing some war against this enemy that's destroying our community. We don't even have a community. So bring up abolitionism and it'll I guess it's like a litmus test. <laughs> it's going it's going to let you know who's real and who's fake. So always bring up abolitionism. Don't be afraid to just start talking about it. Most people don't know as much as you learned tonight on this one program. So you're not going to be in too deep a water to just talk about what you heard right here. Other than that, find us on uh, on our social media uh, outlets, New Abolitionist Radio uh, Facebook page, Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking uh, Facebook group. Find us on our YouTube channel, New Abolitionist. Uh, the Twitter page is growing, so thank you for the people that are finding us there and growing uh, with us on the Twitter feed. We try to keep all kinds of information coming through there. Uh, N-A-R, those are the initials of New Abolitionist Radio, N-A-R, End Slavery. Or you could just put in New Abolitionist Radio. It'll still bring us up. Um, and and catch me on the daily, on the Abolitionist Daily. So that's all I got. Peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. Amen to that one, brothers. Um, I want to give a shout out 
uh, once again to Floyd Boykins and uh, Spoken Vision Magazine for featuring me in uh, February issue of Spoken Vision Magazine. Uh, I'm going to post that to the New Abolitionist Radio site so you can see a little bit more about what goes on with me as an artist. And uh, maybe you can help support the arts by picking up a subscription or just picking up this issue. Uh, I would really appreciate it. You know, we talk a lot, lot about on this show about how people don't care and, you know, how people are not paying attention or they're not aware. But there are people who care and there are people who are aware and there are people who are doing things right now and always. And I like to always try to, you know, show some support for them and try to give them things that they might need. Like, you know, we got a lot of new abolitionists. And when I say new, I mean as just becoming abolitionists. So they look to us for advice on what to do. And uh, one of those things I would like to do as my closing statement is give you an example of how to answer certain questions. First of all, we don't pin everything on the 13th Amendment, but we do believe that the 13th Amendment is the linchpin that holds this all together because it has legal um, legalese in it that allows slavery to continue if you're a convicted criminal. It's really just that simple. Will slavery end if we do something as simple as remove the 13th Amendment? Probably not overnight, but it will turn to a situation where now the private prisons themselves become illegal and have to find, leave the country, uh, close down shop, or find some other kind of loophole. So it puts them on the defensive in a major way. And that's what we need to do, is put them on defensive. And, you know, I also hear questions from people. They ask me, well, you know, Max, when you're talking about abolition, prison abolitions, we need prisons. I mean, aren't there violent criminals, rapists, child molesters, uh, you know, serial killers and all of these things? I mean, you don't want to let them go, do you? No, I don't want to let them go any more than you want to let them go. Do I want to keep them in those same types of prisons that we have today? Well, I think that we can improve the circumstances that we do have in prisons. But we're looking to release somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of the prison population. Those are people who don't belong in prisons. They're addicts or they in there for minor infractions or traffic tickets or debtors prisons or marijuana. Because we know marijuana in 2014 was responsible for 50% of all uh, drug arrests. So even in 2014, we're still throwing people away without a key for marijuana. So, you know, as an abolitionist, I don't want to see everybody be released. No, I just want innocent people out. And there's a lot of innocent people in there, up to 80%. Don't believe the hype when people tell you that just because you're in a jail or a prison or on probation or on parole that you're guilty, because that's not the case. It's just, you know, people being thrown away over racist laws based on class and color. So these are some of the things that you can provide as answers when people approach you with questions as an abolitionist. OK, and I'll tell you more about stuff like that in the weeks to come so we can help you to answer these questions easier. But, you know, when you think about these things, always remember there's one thing that you got to keep at the top of your head because you can look forward to a beautiful future if it should occur. And that is to remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. May appear a confusing blur of activity, each ant doing its own thing, but it can't be. Somehow the ants coordinate their actions so that large insects are overwhelmed, killed, and carried back to the base. Pairs is dying and my people are suffering. The money's still low, you should see how they bust.